Good evening. Major developments in Israel's fight with Hamas today as international pressure now grows to curb civilian casualties. I'm John King in for Anderson. We'll have the latest from our reporters on the ground in just a moment. First, though, some breaking news here in the States. A federal appeals court siding with the former president on that limited gag order issued against him in the special counsel's election interference case. Let's get straight to our chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed. Paula, exactly what did this appeals court do? Well, here, John, they put this gag order on hold. And then in a little over two weeks, a three-judge panel will hear arguments about whether this gag order is constitutional. Now, Judge Tanya Chutkin, she's the federal judge overseeing the election subversion case here in Washington. She imposed a broader set of restrictions on former President Trump at the request of prosecutors. And those restrictions bar him from targeting witnesses in the case, members of the court staff, and the special counsel's office. But Trump's lawyers have argued that this was unconstitutional, that as a candidate for office, that there's a very high bar for restricting his speech. But Judge Chutkin has said, look, your First Amendment yields to the orderly administration of justice. She said in one of the court hearings, she said, look, I have a trial to oversee here and I can't have him attacking people who are just trying to do their jobs or comply with their civic duty. So in just a few weeks, this will go before this panel. On the panel will be two judges appointed by former President Barack Obama and one appointed by President Joe Biden. So you say that panel, Paul, in a few weeks. Uh, what are the practical implications then now, uh, between now and then, for the former president? Well, John, this is a test. This is a test of the judicial system. He is not bound by these restrictions, but if he starts to violate them, he's really going to help make the government's case for them. And that's exactly what's already happened here. Judge Chutkin already put a pause on her own gag order while these appeals played out. And what did he do? He made a series of statements attacking, among others, key witnesses in the case. So it was reinstated. So he has a choice here whether he wants to resume these attacks and help the state make its case. But this larger question, John, of the extent to which you can restrict the speech of someone who is running for the White House, who is also a defendant across multiple jurisdictions, this has never been contemplated by the courts before. So this is something that could potentially make its way all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, whether they want to get involved in this, that's an open question. Well, we will find out soon enough, I suspect. Paula Reed, thank you so much. And we're going to have much more tonight on the legal issues facing the former president and his family, specifically their testimony in a New York civil fraud case that threatens their business empire. That's just ahead. Now, though, the Israeli-Hamas war. And we want to warn you, this was a bloody graphic scene outside the largest hospital in Gaza today after an Israeli airstrike on a nearby ambulance. The Israeli military confirms it struck the ambulance near the Al-Shifa hospital. Doctors tell CNN that hospital already overcrowded because they say civilians view the hospitals as relatively safe. The IDF claims the ambulance was, quote, being used by Hamas, unquote, and that a number of Hamas operatives were killed in that strike. Officials at the Hamas-run health ministry say 15 were killed and dozens wounded in the ambulance attack. Now, CNN cannot confirm either of those claims. The health ministry also says the ambulance was part of a medical convoy headed toward Gaza's southern border. The International Committee of the Red Cross says it was made aware of the convoy but was not a part of it. The strike comes days after two separate strikes on the largest refugee camp in Gaza and late word tonight that Israel could soon be changing tactics in the coming days. 
a senior Biden administration official, telling CNN they expect Israel's air campaign to, quote, decrease in what we've seen. The officials say there will be, quote, more of a tactical focus on the ground campaign. It will be aimed, those officials say, at clearing out the tunnels under Gaza that Hamas operates. The ambulance attack coming the same day that the United States Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, visited the region. Here he is with the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog. Blinken also spent time with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel's war cabinet before he headed to Jordan. Secretary Blinken stressing the need to protect Palestinian civilians. However, Netanyahu said today he opposes any ceasefire, even a temporary one, unless Hamas frees all hostages that it holds. Violence also today in Israel. A CNN camera crew was in Sturot near the border with Gaza and recorded one of at least two rocket attacks on the Israeli city. That strike hitting the courtyard of a kindergarten. Shrapnel hit windows and several nearby cars. No injuries, though, reported. No casualties, excuse me. Nick Robinson is in Sturot and has been seeing rockets fired out of Gaza towards central Israel and intercepted just this evening. He joins us now with the latest on this war. Nick, you were in Sturot when those rockets landed. What more can you tell us? Interestingly, John, they landed right at 6 p.m. We think there were probably mortars, not rockets. Uh, they appear to have been targeting the journalists on the top of the hill where our CNN team was located. Quite a collection of journalists there. They, Hamas has tried to target them before. The type of weapon they're using is very hard to detect. The sirens went off in the town. However, um, it's not unusual to see Hamas fire uh, rockets or mortars at the top of the hour because they know a lot of journalists are broadcasting. They believe if they can hit them, then that will get on international news. And that's the sort of image that they would like to do, to have a strike that scores big hits for them and civilian casualties. That appears to have been what they were aiming for tonight. It didn't work out. Luckily, no one was hurt there, John. And Nick, what more do you know about that airstrike near the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza? Yeah, as you said, the International Committee for the Red Cross said they were aware that a humanitarian convoy of, of ambulances was being organized from the hospital. That's what the hospital officials say was happening. Uh, they were due to head to the south of Gaza, where Israeli officials have said there's a humanitarian zone set up for them to go to. Of course, many Palestinians in Gaza don't really feel that it's safe to travel the roads right now because there is such a strong presence of, uh, of ground troops, IDF ground troops uh, in the area. But what this was, the IDF say, was specifically targeting Hamas operatives who were hiding inside ambulance and ambulance with weapons. And they say their strike was successful. The total number now of civilian casualties is over 9,000, according to the Hamas-led uh, Ministry of Health in Gaza, and more than 22,000 civilians injured. Um, it's perhaps not the sort of uh, strike that uh, the Israeli Defense Forces would have liked to have happened when Secretary Blinken was delivering a message to the contrary. Um, and the understanding of the White House now that the IDF would try to use less airstrikes and more ground operations. Um, we're listening and standing near northern Gaza, and there's been a significant number of strikes, airstrikes in northern Gaza tonight. In fact, the IDF says the way that it operates there at the moment is for the troops on the ground to call in airstrikes when they locate 
indicate Hamas targets. It will be a significant and perhaps dangerous for the troops on the ground change in tactics to minimize the airstrikes. And it's significant that we're still hearing gun battles and hearing fights behind us at the northern end of Gaza, knowing that the IDF has been in there for a week, yet is still fighting battles on the ground with tanks and machine guns. It hasn't taken control of that area yet. It signifies just how big a job they have yet to do in the rest of the Gaza Strip, John. And Nick, as you noted, Secretary Blinken in the region, White House officials saying they expect some change in Israeli strategy. But from what you're seeing, at least right now, anything of note yielded from this trip? Um, the, more, more public pressure on the Israeli government to change. Look, you know, I think just a few days ago, if you, uh, we heard from Prime Minister Netanyahu saying absolutely no ceasefire whatsoever, no ceasefire. We're going to continue the mission to the end. Now he's saying no ceasefire without the release of all the hostages. Is that movement? Look, we know that's been the trade that's being worked out in the background. Um, all the hostages, really, that's a huge expectation for Hamas to hand over uh, IDF soldiers as well as U.S. nationals, civilians that they're holding. Um, but that seems to be where we're at. Um, is, is, there, is there some ground to be covered here? The trade's on the table. Uh, the humanitarian aid is coming in a bit better. The IDF says no fuel will go into Gaza. The hospitals are, are, are stuttering to a halt without that fuel. We're reaching that kind of impasse where everyone knows what the other side wants. Um, is there a deal to be done? And, and, I, and I think that's an open question. Have we seen significant significant change here. Maybe the battle slowed down, but we've heard heavy shelling, heavy uh, impacts in Gaza City, as I was saying, gunfights and, and shelling and, and missiles behind us here in the north of Gaza this evening as well. It doesn't feel to me that much has changed on the ground yet. Of, of course it could. I think the window, though, and that's pertinent to Secretary Blinken's message today, the window for Israel to continue operations as they are, that is definitely closing. Nick Robinson on the ground force. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Nick. Some perspective now on those airstrikes by Israel in areas with very heavy civilian populations. I'm joined by Michael Oren. He's Israel's former ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Oren, thanks for your time. As we see, as the world sees images like the strikes on the Gaza refugee camp in recent days or the ambulance strike in Gaza today, uh, do you think Israel is going to have to adjust its strategy when it comes to the civilian casualties in this conflict? I, I don't think so, John. I don't think Israel can. Uh, keep in mind, we're dealing with an enemy here who is using its own population uh, as human shields. That's what Hamas does. It's preventing uh, Palestinian civilians from fleeing to the relative safety of the south. It is particularly concentrating them around their headquarters, which are located under hospitals and under schools. So in order to get at those headquarters, Israel will have no choice but to destroy those buildings and hope the Palestinian civilians will get out. And there's still uh, sending tens of thousands of leaflets. We're sending text messages by by the hundreds of thousands. Uh, we're sending these like non-lethal uh, projectiles onto buildings. It's called knock-knock. It hits the building, lets the people know in the building that the building's about to be hit, and hope the Palestinians will get out. Um, Hamas doesn't always let them get out. And I just do not think at all that Israel can or will stop because we have to destroy Hamas or we ourselves will die. Uh, point taken, but you hear uh, the conversation around the world. Help us with just today's diplomatic events. Put them in perspective. What do we take away? What do you take away from the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, appeared to say uh, no uh, to Secretary of State Blinken after he visited today? It's not surprising because among the Israeli population, the notion of a, of a humanitarian pause is very unpopular. 
keep in mind, we have the, the families of 240 hostages who've been taken by Hamas. Um, the, the humanitarian system, system, if you will, in, in Gaza is their only leverage to get back from Hamas uh, some indication of the whereabouts of, of their loved ones, even whether their loved ones are in captivity. Many of these families don't even know whether their loved ones are in captivity. They're missing uh, to have the Red Cross visit the hostages. Nothing. Israel will have no leverage. So we have internal politics as American have internal politics. And I think that there's also a fear that any aid that gets into uh, into Gaza will find its way into Hamas. And, and why supply our enemy uh, with vital supplies? Uh, that will only cost us in terms of our soldiers' lives. Sometimes words used by diplomats matter. Help us understand here. Is there a difference in your view between what the United States calls a humanitarian pause and what the prime minister calls a temporary ceasefire? <laughs> it's a good, very good question. It, a pause is essentially a temporary ceasefire. It depends whether it's geographically located. You can have a pause in a certain part, for example, of, of southern Gaza for a certain population that is missing a certain uh, degree of food or medicine. Um, and I think it's very important to point out, John, that I'm not a spokesman for the state of Israel. I'm, I'm a private citizen today. And I understand understand where, where Secretary of State Blinken is coming from. Uh, America has internal politics. I understand the administration is under increasing, increasing pressure from its own party, certainly for international partners, uh, about the rising civilian casualty rate in Gaza. And so I understand where he's coming from. And I would hope that Israel would find a way at some point to let these pauses and these limited corridors go through. At the end of the day, I think it's in Israel's interest as well, because we have to create time and space for our army to do what it has to do, which is basically save this country. And we can't, we won't have that time and space if international pressure is mounting for a ceasefire. And a ceasefire means Hamas wins. Simple as that. A ceasefire means Hamas gets away with mass murder. Uh, I accept the point. You're a private citizen now, but you're very well plugged in in Israeli politics and with the Israeli mm -hmm. government. We have seen the release of some hostages since the war began. Any leeway, in your view, in the Israeli position that all hostages would have to be released uh, before a ceasefire or a much broader pause is possible? I think it's significant. Again, here, diplomatic language counts. I think the primers were saying that a pause would be considered where the hostages to relief or if the Red Cross could visit the hostages. And I want to be very careful here because, again, I'm not his spokesman, but that's what I understood from his remarks. Um, there has to be some kind of quid pro quo. Uh, the question is, you know, is there anyone who can help? As you know, from Israel, Secretary Blinken went on to Jordan to meet with Arab regional partners about security, trying to make some progress in the release of hostages. Uh, this is one of the defining questions. Do you think there is anybody, any other country, any other entity that has the type of leverage with Hamas to make that happen? Qatar. Qatar, Qatar, Qatar. Three answers. Qatar is the, the godfather of Hamas. Qatar hosts uh, some of the leading figures in Hamas. It is the bankroller of Hamas in many ways. So America has influence over Qatar. America has a major naval base in Qatar. Has, Qatar has major business interests in the United States. I think that pressure be put on Qatar to at least let the Red Cross visit these hostages. Ambassador Michael Oren, grateful for your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you, John. While the United States pushes for a diplomatic solution, we are learning today the American military is flying drones over Gaza to help locate the more than 240 hostages still missing. Orrin Lieberman joins us from the Pentagon with that reporting. Orrin, what have you learned about this mission for the U.S. drones? 
John, these drones fit into the bigger effort from the Biden administration and from the military to try to help Israel in any way it can when it comes to the intel aspect and the planning aspect of the hostage rescue effort. We have seen flight tracks on flight tracking websites showing what are unidentified aircraft on the flight tracking websites, but what we have since learned from multiple U.S. officials are American drones circling repeatedly over southern Gaza in an attempt to try to gather any sort of information, anything that can help the U.S. and Israel identify where the hostages are or where a hostage rescue effort could or should proceed. Now, it's unclear if there has been any breakthrough on that. We haven't heard that they've located the hostages or gotten a clear sense of where they are. But that effort continues, and it's been ongoing since October 7th, again, to try to help in any way possible to try to move forward the hostage rescue effort. Now, it's important to note, these are unarmed surveillance drones. They are not part of targeting, so they're not passing targeting info onto the Israelis or intel used in targeting. It it is solely and and narrowly used to try to gather intel to try to find some sort of progress on the effort to rescue hostages, John. Uh, To that end, tell us more about the MQ-9 Reaper drone. Is that what we're talking about here? And who in the United States military is responsible for flying them over Gaza? What should be clear is that the drones over Gaza were not clear if they are MQ-9 Reaper drones, but they probably are. And that's because a pair of drones we saw off the coast of Lebanon were MQ-9 Reaper drones, according to a U.S. official. So it's likely the same type of asset. These are advanced and sophisticated surveillance drones capable of picking up a number of different kinds of signals. So effectively, this is exactly what you want flying over Gaza to see if you can get any sort of intel. They also have a long loiter time, so they're able to stay there and and gather any sort of signals, any sort of intelligence possible to try to move that effort forward in terms of, again, the hostage rescue effort. Warren Lieberman at the Pentagon, thank you so much. And there's still much more to come tonight. The head of Hezbollah hasn't made a public speech in about 17 years. Well, today, he uttered his first words in public, praising the October 7th attacks, and he spoke about whether the war Israel is fighting could escalate beyond Israel's northern border where, of course, Hezbollah is located. Also, more tonight on the former First Family's legal issues. Eric Trump testified today and will tell you what he said about his father doing the same thing next week in their New York civil fraud trial. This show is supported by BetterHelp Online Therapy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Maybe you'd go hiking or take a much-needed nap. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? BetterHelp wants you to know that now's the time to choose happiness. And working with a therapist can help you get closer to a more blissful you. Therapists are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions. And they teach productive coping skills, giving you a greater sense of confidence to face your stress and anxiety. With BetterHelp, you get the benefits of in-person therapy. Plus, it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people in counting with licensed therapists, all 100% online. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com AC360 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot AC360. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. 
Israel's military says it is on a, quote, very high level of alertness at its northern border with Lebanon. While skirmishes occur almost daily, the announcement comes a day after an unusually strong exchange of fire with Iran-backed Hezbollah. And after the leader of Hezbollah today made his first public remarks since 2006, praising the October 7th attack on Israel. It was an action that was heroic, brave, innovative, and it was very well executed. It was great. It was a huge earthquake in the region. Nasrallah also threatened the possibility, possibility of an escalation of fighting on Israel's northern border, but he did not directly state that Hezbollah is planning to launch a larger flight. Fight. Let's get to CNN's chief national security correspondent, Jim Shudo. Jim, you've been in that region for quite some time. You've seen the skirmishes day to day. Uh, what is the current state of play and how is the Nasrallah remarks being interpreted? You could read them any number of ways. Well, John, there was an enormous amount of anticipation in advance of this speech, fear even here in northern Israel, that Nasrallah would announce a major escalation in this war. We were in the midst of Israeli live fire exercises yesterday, preparing for the possibility of an escalation. Uh, we saw Israeli military leaders saying they were on a very high state of alert, and we witnessed that high state of alert here. We were on a hillside in a northern city earlier today where they were posting lookouts to look for potential rocket strikes. In the end, Nasrallah said that such an escalation is on the table, in his words, but he did not order it yet. He said that it would depend on Israeli military action, Israelis' decisions going forward. Uh, th that's notable because you may remember that the concern had been that if and when Israel began major ground operations inside Gaza, that that might be the trigger. In fact, we've seen the beginning of major ground operations inside Gaza, uh, and that has not triggered that major response from Hezbollah Yet, I, I will tell you, though, uh, that that does not mean that the alarm here is gone. You still have large swaths of the uh, northern part of this country that have been evacuated. Those people are not going home anytime soon. And those 70,000 Israeli forces that have been stationed on the border in anticipation of such an escalation, they're not leaving either, John. Jim Shudo, thanks so much for that reporting. Let's add to it now with perspective from Rami Igor. He's a former chief of hostages at MIA unit of the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service. Uh, Rami, grateful for your time tonight. As we mentioned, the IDF says the Israeli military is on, quote, very high level of alertness at that northern border. Uh, where do you see this headed there, especially after the Nas Nasrallah speech? Nasrallah's speech was very interesting in many respects. One thing is Nasrallah is telling us that he was not pre-informed of the Hamas operation in, in, in Israel. He and the Iranian, his backers, did not know anything about what the Hamas did. He reiterated that this is a Palestinian question and it's not a Lebanese question. He really in many ways disconnected himself from what's happening in the Gaza Strip. But he said, we have been there in the war since the 8th mm. of October, which is true in a way. They have been in light skirmishes and they have been uh, put down by the Israeli army, as your correspondent said before, which is stationed there. Uh, Nasrallah, it looks like he does not want to be connected. Nonetheless, Nasrallah, like Hamas, is not predictable. And the Israelis should 
take his words with a pinch of salt and see what happens. Well, th- that's the interesting, the fascinating point, because you could read what he said a couple of different ways. So what do you see as the threat, the possible threat from Hezbollah? And we have so many Israeli troops on the northern border, which have obviously could be used in Gaza if you thought it was safe to do that. But the IDF, at least at the moment, does not think that's the smart move. What's your assessment? I don't think that the IDF needs any more uh, troops in the in the Gaza Strip. There's enough troops down there. Remember, Gaza City is not a very big place. There are enough troops there. They're working slowly. It's a it's a war of attrition. The the Hamas is underground, and it's coming out once in a while from the piers and being and fighting the Israeli troops. In the north, you have to remember that even though Hezbollah has a huge amount of rockets and Hezbollah is a much stronger force than the than Hamas is, Israel has been in bigger wars in the past. If you rethink of the 1973 war, the 1973 war was against two major armies. And with all due respect to Hamas and Hezbollah, we can deal with them. We wouldn't like to do it, but we can deal with it. I would like to also add to your con- your conversation before about the ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. The Hamas, this major objective of Hamas now is to go back to a ceasefire. Hamas wants to go back into the old paradigm of rounds of fighting. They will fight us, we will let them regroup, and they will come back. Israel is not going to allow this, and it's not going to allow even the small pauses that Secretary Blinken uh, asked for. And the reason is very simple. Hamas right now is underground. Hamas doesn't know what's happening above ground. Having a pause, even if it's for several hours, will change Hamas's sight of what's happening and its fighting tactics. Not only that, Hamas will use uh, uh, any pause for um, for propaganda. They will bring in uh, um, reporters from all over the world and try to market their fake news, like today's fake news about the ambulance. Rami Igor, interesting perspective. Really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Up next for us, more on our breaking news Thank here you. in the States on the gag order against the former president, now on hold in the special counsel's January 6th case, and what Eric Trump said today about his father testifying next week in the New York civil fraud case against the Trump family business. Again, our breaking news from the top of the hour. A federal appeals court temporarily froze the gag order against former President Trump in the special counsel's election interference case, while the appeals court considers his claim that those restrictions violate his First Amendment rights. Until then, Mr. Trump allowed to speak freely about the case and criticize witnesses, prosecutors, and court staff. Meanwhile, at a courthouse here in New York today, after two days of testimony, Eric Trump said his father is, quote, fired up to take the stand on Monday in that $250 million civil fraud trial against the Trump family business. The former president's daughter, Ivanka, who was not part of the lawsuit, will also testify next week after she failed in a bid to get that testimony pushed off. The judge in this case has already ruled there was, quote, persistent and repeated fraud. Now he must determine six other claims, including falsifying business records and insurance fraud. The Trumps and other executives at the company are accused of inflating the value of properties to secure more favorable loans and insurance policies. They all deny wrongdoing. CNN's Kara Scannell joins us now from the courthouse in Lower Manhattan. Uh, Kara, first, let's start with Eric Trump. What can you tell us more, more about his testimony? 
Yeah, so this is Eric Trump's second day on the stand. He testified for a total of four hours over two days. And today in his testimony, he was standing by the accuracy of these financial statements, the ones that the judge has already found to be fraudulent. He said that he was speaking with attorneys and lawyers, and he was comforted by them that these were, quote, perfect financial statements. And he said he was more than happy to sign them. He also said he would not have signed any statements that he believed to be inaccurate. So really doubling down on the accuracy of the statements. And also today, the judge extending the gag order in this case, saying that it no longer just applies to the former president, but also applies to the attorneys in this case. He was saying that no one is can talk about any of the communications the judge has had with his law clerk. It has been something that Trump's attorneys have brought up repeatedly during the trial, saying that there is a perception of bias by the law clerk who is passing notes to the judge. The judge saying now that is off limits. He said they've received hundreds of threatening emails, letters, and packages to their to his chambers. And he said that far outweighs Trump's First Amendment rights. John? And Kara, take us ahead to next week. Former President Trump will take the stand. His daughter Ivanka will take the stand. Uh, there'll be a lot of theater there. What's the important substance? Right. I mean, well, this is going to be Donald Trump under oath having to answer questions about his financial statements, which has been the focus of his life for more than 50 years before he even ran for president. So the actual accuracy of these statements, his role in the statements is at stake. And it is going to be theater. It is going to be filled with tension. He's criticized the judge who will be sitting near feet from. The New York attorney general is expected to be in attendance. She's been in court every time the former president has been there. So it's expected to be a lot of tension, a lot of theater. But there's also a lot at stake since the uh, the issue here for the judge to decide is what happens to the future of Trump's business in New York and him and his family's ability to conduct business in the state. Once his testimony wraps, Ivanka Trump will be on the stand. She's expected to testify on Wednesday. She will be the state's last witness, and then New York will rest its case, and it will be Donald Trump's turn to put on any kind of defense. John? Fascinating. Next week ahead, Kara Scannell outside the courthouse. Thanks so much. Let's get more perspective now on all of this from the former federal prosecutor, Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School now, as well as our CNN political analyst, Maggie Haberman. She, of course, a New York Times senior political correspondent who has covered the former president for decades and also the author, you see it there, of this best-selling book about him, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Uh, Again, so many conversations about Trump and the family. Now you have the court of law and the court of public opinion. That's where we are. The sons, helping him or hurting him? I think it depends on how you look at this. I think that there was nothing that was a bombshell that you saw. There was a moment with Eric Trump's testimony yesterday in particular where he was confronted with saying some, that he had not been involved in, in, in a piece of, of it. I believe it was a certification. Uh, and he was, there were some emails suggesting that he did know uh, that Trump's sons had blamed things they didn't recall on memory lapses. I think that Donald Trump Jr. was generally perceived as faring better than his brother did. I don't know how much of a difference it makes in a case. Uh, you will have a, probably a stronger opinion on this than I do. Um, I don't know how much of a difference it makes in a case where the judge has already done uh, partial summary judgment and there are just these outstanding claims and clearly the judge is already questioning the credibility of all of the Trumps. I want to get to that, the legal part, the court part in a minute, but the former president on the stand. Uh, Eric Trump says he's fired up to testify. I'm, I, I uh, you, think that's definitely true. That's definitely true. Yeah. But you also know uh, better than most, uh, Donald Trump and discipline aren't often in the same sentence. What are the risks there? There, there are a number of risks. Uh, you know, in, this is a kind of 
a setting that he has not been in in 10 years. He last testified, other than actually previously briefly in this case, he last testified in May of 2013 in a case, a civil case in Chicago against him that he won. Uh, it, a lot has happened since then. This is going to be a performance. In one-on-one -on -one direct interpersonal uh, confrontation, he tends to back off. I don't see that being the case here. He is so angry. He has had some time to look at how this courtroom is, how this judge is, because he's been sitting in the right. trial in the courtroom, which he didn't have to do uh, over a couple of days. Uh, but who knows? I mean, he has a history of, you know, uh, making extemporaneous remarks during depositions that don't always help him. Uh, if he gets himself all worked up, we could see him get himself in trouble. I do think you are seeing just one pause here in terms of what he might be attempting to do. He's not good at discipline, but he can be good at theatrics. And mm -hmm. they are clearly trying on the Trump team to try to create a trail to accuse the judge of bias and, and conceivably ask for a mistrial. So let's come to those legal points. So let's start uh, first with the testimony of the sons. Did Anything? Did you see anything that actually helps the Trump family defense? I didn't. I mean, they were making the case we expected them to, which is that essentially it was the accountant's responsibility to prepare these financial statements. To the extent you see our names on that, that's really essentially just because our role was to sign. But we had no involvement in the valuation, and we didn't really review um, what was in, substantively, what was in these valuations. We relied on the experts for that. That was expected. Um, but the documents, um, which the judge has already relied on in granting partial summary judgment on that really important first cause of action, really do link the brothers um, to these transactions and suggest that they were involved and that they did sign off on them, which would suggest some intent on their part. Now, what remains for the judge to decide in the remaining causes of action is whether they actually did intend to defraud as opposed to just have involvement in the creation of statements that were objectively false and fraudulent. So the judge is going to be making a credibility determination in evaluating their denial that they acted with intent to defraud. And to Maggie's point about the former president on the stand, he is clearly trying to make the case this is not fair. Uh, he's not being treated fairly. There's been this dust up and back and forth continuing throughout the week over the judge's clerk and characterizations of whether the clerk is being fair or not. Do you see, is there, if you were on the Trump legal team, do you see enough seeds there to put together a path for an appeal? I do not on the issue of bias at all, but I do think we're seeing a strategy both to distract today from what was happening in terms of the Trump son's testimony and how it wasn't particularly helpful to the Trump uh, defendants uh, by focusing on the clerk. And I think maybe also an intentional uh, effort to provoke the judge. The judge issued a very strongly worded order this evening, extending to the lawyers the gag order that he had already imposed on the former president, um, not to speak about his staff. And of course, he's being protective of his clerk primarily. The Lawyers know that judges communicate with their staff and their law clerks throughout proceedings. That's normal part of the process. Um, so it was really ridiculous that they raised this issue of passing notes. And it makes me think that it was strategic in order to perhaps provoke the judge into reacting or to just distract from what was otherwise not a particularly good day for them in court. Jessica Roth, May Haberman, grateful you're both here tonight to help me understand all that. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. And coming up for us for the third straight day, those desperate to leave Gaza through the Rafah crossing into Egypt, some have been able to do so. We'll take you live to Cairo next. People desperate to leave Gaza can only do so in one place. You see it right there, the Rafah crossing into Egypt. For the third straight day, a number of foreign nationals and injured Palestinians for some of the fortunate to get out. Let's bring in CNN's Melissa Bell. She is in Cairo joining us with more. Melissa, do we know what are the latest numbers of Americans and foreign nationals who've been lucky enough to get across that border? 
Well, we know, uh, John, first of all, that there were 350, just over 350 more foreign nationals that made it through Rafa to the safety of uh, Egypt uh, today. As for Americans themselves, the latest White House figures that they put out yesterday was just over 100. But this is, of course, extremely fluid and the numbers are changing uh, all the time. It is a very complicated system at the Rafa crossing. We've been speaking to people coming out. It is uh, difficult for the people inside to make sure that their name is on, on that list day in, day out to get themselves to the Rafa crossing and to get themselves across uh, specifically because we've been hearing a lot of stories about people whose names are on the list and then find that their wives or their child or their parents are not so they're staying behind uh, to be with them until it can be sorted out. So quite a chaotic situation. We've also been hearing a bit more uh, this evening, John, about the frantic negotiations that took place to allow the opening of the Rafa crossing and all of these exits uh, by foreign dual nationals to take place uh, with an administration official speaking to the fact that initially Hamas had insisted on some of its wounded uh, soldiers being able to come out at the same time. That was pushed back on very firmly uh, by Israel and the United States. A second round of negotiations led to the agreement that in the end led to that breakthrough that we saw on Tuesday. Uh, and that was uh, that foreign nationals would be allowed out if wounded Palestinians could be allowed out as well as long as Hamas soldiers were not amongst them. And that is uh, what began happening on Wednesday morning. This is, as you said, now the third day of these people being able to come out. We understand that all 7,000 will, over the course of the coming days, and despite those logistical difficulties, be able to get out uh, through the Rafa crossing. Extremely good news for them, but it is a, a tough call for all those families, not just negotiating that way, their way through the Rafa crossing, but making the decision uh, sometimes to leave uh, their loved ones behind, as we've been finding out, John. Right, Melissa, tell us more about what you're hearing. As you, again, you're telling these personal stories, these painful stories, uh, not just about the process, but about what the Gaza they've left behind. That's right. Remember that a lot of these people coming out are essentially either aid workers or people who had ties uh, to Gaza. So uh, Palestinian Americans, for instance, uh, of many different nationalities who'd been visiting with family and found themselves on the 7th of October on the wrong side of the border. So these are people who've witnessed very closely what's happened over the course of the now nearly month uh, of this war. And uh, for many of them, we've been finding out that it was extremely hard to decide to leave however dangerous and desperate the situation inside. We met, for instance, this morning, John, with a couple who left on Wednesday, some of the very first to get out, an Italian aid worker and his Palestinian wife, uh, who were the f some of the first people on that list, and yet, uh, the decision was not an easy one. So many people are talking about this, uh, this coming out as a victory for us, but it's not a victory. Like we are, like it's a, it's a loss for everyone. To be honest, since yesterday, I was already regretting going out because I was the entire day I was unable to reach my family, so I couldn't even tell them that I made it safely and I'm okay, and I know that's. Yani my mom, she actually begged me to go out. For me, I wouldn't have done it. And I still feel I shouldn't have gone out. You know, the survival guilt. Of course, we expect, nonetheless, that process to continue over the coming days. And of course, given uh, what this young couple told us, which is that every day things seem to be getting worse, uh, you can expect that a lot of people will be having an extra sense of urgency uh, getting them down to the Rafa gate to see whether or not their names appear on that list, John. Melissa Bell and Carol. Melissa, thank you so much. It's been nearly one month now, as Melissa noted, since 
the Hamas attack on Israel and the kidnapping of the estimated 240 people who are now thought to be hostages in Gaza. Ten are believed to be Americans. The hope is those U.S. drones we spoke about earlier in the program will help find and locate them. But who are the Americans and what do we know about their abductions? Randy Kay has more. Israeli-American citizen Liat Bainan hid in a safe room when Hamas attacked the Niraz kibbutz. Her father, Yehuda Bainan, told CNN his daughter and her husband are both missing. Yehuda says Liat is a 49-year-old high school civics and history teacher who also works as a tour guide at Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem. Until they're uh, back home safely, uh, I'm not going to uh, let myself... Uh, uh, get overly uh, confident or overly hopeful that there'll be a sound resolution to this uh, crisis. The parents of Omer Nutra are waiting for their son's safe return. Omer was in a tank, so we know that he was taken out of the tank. We saw him walking. Omer Nutra grew up in New York, where his parents, Orna and Ronan Nutra, still live. He moved to Israel for a gap year before college and ended up joining the Israeli military. He was taken hostage while in his IDF uniform. His parents last spoke with him just hours before the attack. Ronan immediately tried to contact him and call him. There was no response, of course. Omer Nutra turned 22 a week after being taken hostage. These images show 23-year-old Hirsch Goldberg Poland being led away by Hamas after his left hand and part of his arm had been blown off by a grenade. Hirsch had been sheltering with dozens of others at the music festival when the gunman attacked. I personally feel like we have to keep running to the end of the earth to save him. And there are also the moments in this universe that we now live where you say, Maybe he died on the truck. Maybe he bled out in that truck. Maybe he died yesterday. Maybe he died five minutes ago. This is what American-Israeli citizens Judith Weinstein Hagi and her husband Gadi Hagi saw as Hamas moved across the border from Gaza to Israel. Judith, who is 70 and Gadi 72, were on their regular morning walk when the attack began. The couple's daughter tells CNN her parents were about a mile and a half from their home in the Niraz kibbutz. Their daughter, Iris Hagi Liniato, said her parents tried to call for help. My mom is 70 years old, you know, like why would they kidnap 70 year old? Their daughter told CNN that a paramedic said her mom told him they'd been shot by terrorists on a motorcycle. The daughter also confirmed that her parents' phones last pinged from Gaza. 19-year-old Aitai Chen, an Israeli-American citizen who's serving in the IDF, is also believed to be a hostage in Gaza. He'd been deployed to defend Israel when he disappeared. His father says he last spoke to his son from a military base that was under attack. What we uh, do know is that uh, he uh, uh, was active and, and was seen two hours afterwards. But beyond that point, uh, no one has seen him. Samuel Keith Siegel is also missing. His family told CNN he's a U.S. citizen and is being held in Gaza along with his wife. His family says there was a sighting of his car crossing the border. Siegel's brother told CNN that he grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and works in the pharmaceutical industry. My brother is a very giving human being. My brother is always looking for the next person to help. Sagi Dekelchen grew up at the Niraz kibbutz. 
His father says he disappeared as he and others tried to protect families at the kibbutz from the Hamas gunman. We're waiting for Sagi to come home. Um, we do not know uh, what fate he met. Sagi is 35 years old. He's the father of two daughters and his wife is pregnant. Randy Kay, CNN, New York. Randy's reporting there are just some of the estimated 240 hostages inside Gaza. Coming up, President Biden and the First Lady honoring the victims of last week's horrific mass shooting in Maine. More on that and who else is in Lewiston to comfort those impacted. That's next. The President and First Lady visited Lewiston, Maine late today to honor the 18 people killed and 13 injured in last week's mass shooting. They paid their respects to families and victims of the massacre after meeting with first responders. Also in Maine to comfort those impacted by the tragedy, you see right there, this golden retriever named Cooper and his handler, Andy Garmezzi. Both are volunteers with the National Crisis Response Canines. On the flight there, according to USA Today, Garmezzi read some notes that passengers gave him for the people of Lewiston. Listen. In a world where there seems to be no love, know that Southwest Flight 1843 is full of people praying for all the families who went through this horrific act of hate. Love and prayers for all those in Lewiston, Maine. Thank you all. Love and prayers as well from all of us here at CNN. That does it for us on AC360. Tonight, the news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins is next.